listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Skylight Books virtual event. My name is Lance, and I'm a bookseller and the podcast producer at Skylight Books, and I'll be your host this evening. If you're not familiar with us, Skylight Books is a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open for in-store browsing from, as of next week, it'll be 10 to 10, and we're also online at online 24-7 at www.skylightbooks.com. We're so happy you could join us for this virtual event featuring Cultish by Amanda Montel in conversation with Owen Pearson. Amanda Montel is a writer and language scholar from Baltimore, Maryland. She's the author of the critically acclaimed Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language, which she's developing for television with FX. Her writing has appeared in Marie Claire, Cosmopolitan, Nylon, Glamour, The Rumpus, uh, Birdie and what, who, who, what, where, where she formerly served as the features and PD editor. Amanda holds a degree in linguistics from NYU and lives in Los Angeles Silver Lake's neighborhood, Silver Lake neighborhood, with her partner, plants, and pets, who are amazing. Um, love her, love them. Um, Owen Pearson is a 29 year old full time influencer and advocate for the LGBTQIA mental health in AAPI communities. He's recently come out as someone born and raised in a cult, unification movement. Owen hopes to shed Owen hopes to shed light on his own personal experience in the cult, and in doing so, educating and healing the definition of cult, as well as the members still in it, still in or out of it. You can find him on all social media channels at Owen Pearson. That's yeah, Owen Pearson. <laughs> find his temple. Yeah, Owen has a BA in psychology from George Mason University. Owen was also one of the main youth pastors in the unification movement, with six plus years of experience working with kids and young adults in camps, workshops, and various educational and character development programs. He also has four plus years of experience working with kids and young adults on the autism spectrum. Owen also currently works and has volunteered with various LGBTQIA plus organizations and nonprofits, including the Human Rights Campaign, the Trevor, the Trevor Project, the It, Get, the it Gets Better Project, GLAD, and, it's, and is the creative director of the nonprofit Be Free Stories, which is all about being a safe person to come out to. The IG is at Be Free Stories, so follow them there. Um, he is currently working on his book, which is an autobiography. So welcome, Amanda and Owen. I'm going to start, we're going to start off with your reading, Amanda. Perfect. Um, okay, so before I get to my reading, I want to tell a little spooky story, if you will, about something that happened at Skylight Books the other day. So Skylight Books is my local bookstore. I live about five minutes away. And last week, I went to sign a bunch of the pre-order and regular order copies. And as I was going through and signing each one, um, one of the booksellers came across something that she told me she had never seen ever in her life before. And I have it with me. So this is quite spooky, but I think quite appropriate as well. We came across a copy of the book that was wildly and terrifyingly misprinted. Not only was the book printed backwards, so all the pages are in reverse, but it was also reverse bound. So you can only open it in like a couple of places. Like oh it's not, God. you cannot open the book, except in these like three places. And in one of the places where it opens straight to is this page where there's a giant rip down the front. And this is the part of the book where I tell the story of the cult my dad was in. So is that not 
a delightful ghost story from the annex of Skylight Books. Can I say I've worked at a bookstore for years too, and I've never seen that happen before. That's something I've never seen in my life. I I feel honored to have been haunted in this way. <laughs> and I thought it would only be appropriate. Oh, I think there actually might be some feedback. Do you two want to mute yourselves? Um, cool. So I thought it would be appropriate to read that section that was chosen to be haunted by this book ghost. Um, so this is an excerpt from part one of Cultish. Um, sorry, oh my gosh, I have so many little post-it notes here. Here we go. I grew up entranced by all things cult, mostly because of my father. As a kid, he was forced to join one. In 1969, when my dad, Craig Montell, was 14, his absentee father and stepmother decided they wanted in on the blossoming countercultural movement. So they moved young Craig and his two toddler-age half-sisters onto a remote socialist commune outside San Francisco called Synanon. In the late 1950s, Synanon started as a, as a rehabilitation center for hard drug users, labeled dope fiends, but, labor, but later extended to accommodate non-drug-addicted lifestylers. In Synanon, children lived in barracks miles away from their parents, and nobody was allowed to work or go to school on the outside. Some members were forced to shave their heads, many married couples were separated and assigned new partners, but everyone on the Synanon settlement, no exceptions, had to play the game. The game was a ritualistic activity where every evening members were divided into small circles and subjected to hours of vicious personal criticism by their peers. This practice was the centerpiece of Synanon. In fact, life there was divided into two semantic categories, in the game and out of the game. These confrontations were presented as group therapy, but really they were a form of social control. There was nothing fun about the game, which could be hostile or humiliating, yet it was referred to as something you played. It turns out this type of extreme truth-telling activity is not uncommon in cultish groups. Jim Jones hosted similar events called family meetings or catharsis meetings. I cut my teeth on Synanon tales from my father, who escaped at 17 and went on to become a prolific neuroscientist. Now his very job is to ask hard questions and seek proof at every turn. My dad was always so generous with his storytelling, indulging my wide-eyed curiosity by repeating the same stories of Synanon's dismal living quarters and conformist milieu of the biologist he met there who tasked him with running the commune's medical lab at age 15. While his peers outside Synanon were fretting over puppy love squabbles and SAT prep, my dad was culturing followers' throat swabs and testing food handlers' fingertips for tuberculosis, my tuberculosis microbes. The lab was a sanctuary for my dad, a rare space on Synanon's grounds where the rules of empirical logic applied. Paradoxically, it's where he found his love of science. Hungry for an education outside the commune's closed system and desperate for a legitimate diploma that would allow him to attend college, when he wasn't in a white coat or playing the game, he was sneaking off the settlement to attend an accredited high school in San Francisco, the only Synanon child to do so. He stayed quiet, flew under the radar, and privately interrogated everything. Even when I was a little kid, what always gripped me most about my dad's Synanon stories was the group's special language. Terms like in the game and out of the game, love match, meaning synanon marriages, act as if, an imperative never to question synanon's protocols, to simply act as if you agreed until you did. Demonstrators and PODs, parents on duty, the rotation of adults randomly selected to chaperone the children's school and barracks, and so many more. This curious lingo is the clearest window into that world. As the daughter of scientists, I figure some combination of nature, nurture, and synanon stories caused me to become a rather incredulous person. And since early childhood, I have always been keenly sensitive to cultish sounding rhetoric, but also beguiled by its power. In middle school, my best friend's mother was a born again Christian, and I'd sometimes skip Hebrew school on Sundays to accompany her to their, to accompany the family to their evangelical megachurch. Nothing enraptured me more than the way these churchgoers spoke how upon setting foot in the building, everyone slipped into a dialect of evangelicalese. It wasn't King, King James Bible English. It was very, it was modern and very distinct. 
I started using their glossary of buzzwords whenever I attended services, just to see if it affected how the congregates treated me. I picked up phrases like, on my heart, a synonym for on my mind, love up on someone, to show someone love, in the word, reading the Bible, father of lies, Satan, the evil that govern those, governs the world. Sorry, that's my dog who's very excited about this story. And convicted to be divinely moved to do something. It was like the code language of an exclusive clubhouse. Though these special terms didn't communicate anything that couldn't be said in plain English, using them in the right way at the right time was like a key unlocking the group's acceptance. Immediately, I was perceived as an insider. The language was a password, a disguise, a truth serum. It was so powerful. Creating special language to influence people's behavior and beliefs is so effective, in part simply because speech is the first thing we're willing to change about ourselves and also the last thing we let go. Unlike shaving your head, relocating to a commune, or even changing your clothes, adopting new terminology is instant and seemingly commitment-free. Let's say you show up to a spiritual meeting out of curiosity, and the host starts off by asking the group to repeat a chant. Odds are you do it. Maybe it feels odd and peer pressure-y at first, but they didn't ask you to fork over your life savings or kill anyone. How much damage can it do? Cultish language works so efficiently and invisibly to mold our worldview in the shape of the gurus that once it's embedded, it sticks. After you grow your hair out, move back home, delete the app, whatever it is, the special vocabulary is still there. In part two of this book, we'll meet a man named Frank Lifford, a survivor of the 1990s suicide cult Heaven's Gate, who 25 years after defecting and disowning its belief system, still calls his two former leaders by their monastic names, T and Doe, refers to the group as the classroom and describes its members haunting fate with the euphemism leaving earth, just as he was taught to do over two decades ago. I began this project out of the perverse craving for cult campfire tales that so many of us possess, but it quickly became clear that learning about the connections across language, power, community, and belief could legitimately help us understand what motivates people's fanatical behaviors during this ever restless era. A time when we find multi-level marketing scams masquerading as feminist startups, phony shamans ballyhooing bad health advice, online hate groups radicalizing new members and kids sending each other literal death threats in defense of their favorite brands. The haunting, beautiful, stomach-twisting truth is that no matter how cult-phobic you fancy yourself, our participation in things is what defined, defines us. Whether you were born into a family of Pentecostals who speak in tongues, left home at 18 to join the Kundalini yogis, got dragged into a soul-sucking startup right out of college, became an AA regular last year or just five seconds ago, clicked a targeted ad promoting not just a skincare product, but the priceless opportunity to become part of a movement. Group affiliations, which can have profound, even eternal significance, make up the scaffolding upon which we build our lives. It doesn't take someone broken or disturbed to crave that structure. Again, we're wired to. And what we often overlook is that the material with which that scaffolding is built, the very material that fabricates our reality is language. We have always used language to explain what we already knew, wrote English scholar Gary Iberl in his 2007 book, Dangerous Words. But more importantly, we have also used it to reach toward what we did not yet know or understand. With words, we breathe reality into being. This book will explore the wide spectrum of cults and their uncanny lexicons, starting with the most famously blatantly dreadful ones and working its way to communities so seemingly innocuous, we might not even notice how cultish they are. Um, the words we hear and use every day can provide clues to help us determine which groups are healthy, which groups are toxic, and which are a little bit of both, and to what extent we wish to engage with them. Within these pages lies an adventure into the curious and curiously familiar language of cultish. So in the words of many a cult leader, come along, follow me. So that's a little bit of the beginning of the book. Um, I'm so honored that Owen is here. Oh, I think you need to, oh, we might need to, well, actually let's do it this way. We'll like mute and unmute ourselves as we each talk to prevent feedback. 
Um, and I think there might be a little bit of feedback right now, but I'll ask you a question and then um, I'll maybe speak on it. So again, I'm so honored that you joined me for this and are you know here to generously share some of your knowledge and wisdom and experiences. Um, so first, like, I mean, I'll, I'll just like start for, with a question for you. And it's a question that I asked a lot of the sources that I spoke to for this book, which is just, you know, what is your personal relationship to the word cult and how has it evolved over time? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, it's so crazy being here with you, with your book, because the way we connect is through DM, direct message on Instagram, right? Because of a mutual friend, Blair Imani, it's the power of social media and the power of being an influencer as someone who has a lot of followers, as you talk about in your book, it's just, it's very interesting reading your book from an educational history lesson kind of way where it's like, for me, it's my lived life. Um, I'm 29 years old. I am half Japanese, half white, which in Hawaii where I live right now is a very common thing. Being a Hapa, being a mixed race of Asian descent is very normal here. Um, but the reason I'm a Hapa is because my parents, um, my dad is white and my mom is Japanese, joined the unification movement or better known in the 70s as Family Federation for World Peace. They joined at a very young age. You know, they came from very different backgrounds, very different lives. My mom grew up in Japan. My dad grew up actually in Los Angeles, California. And they were witness to, meaning someone from the unification church reached out to them and told them that this is this is it this is what you need to follow and what i really loved about reading your book is that the people that join cults aren't necessarily lost or hurting if there's a lot happening behind the scenes that they are searching for something ideological or beyond their lives currently that have a lot of suffering and actually pain that they want to get rid of um so the reason i say all this is because the the founder of my unification cult movement, whatever you want to call it, was the one that actually matched, meaning, if you will, engaged, married my parents together with 10,000 other couples in Madison Square Garden in New York, uh, New York City. Uh, they were matched together the same day my parents met is the same day they were married. And it's the same day that they made the commitment to be husband and wife. Because with the premise that, you know, being married in this movement would bring about world peace. And the reason Reverend Moon, my cult leader, decided to do that is because what happened here in Pearl Harbor and also what happened in Japan with the atomic bombings in World, World War II was super traumatic, super intense. One of the most intense moments of history, right? But what did Reverend Moon at 16, when Jesus came to him on the clouds as a self-proclaimed second Messiah coming of Christ believe, as he made this cult, as he made this movement, um, he believed that having families from two different races, two different religions, two different nationalities would bring about peace in the world, would create ideal families or true families with the mission of one family under God to create world peace. As I'm using this language, I'm sure a lot of people listening are like, what does that mean? What is this? And those are things I can dive deeper in later, but I'm, I'm known as a blessed child. I'm born with no original sin. I'm kind of tapping back into my ideology that I use as I was in the church cult. Um, so my journey is very interesting. You know, when I lived for 23, four, 24 years in Northern Virginia in my community, uh, I was very much a big follower of this movement because that's what my parents uh, told me from a very young age. I believed it because I believe my parents. I love my parents. They gave me so much love, so much guidance. But what I also was told from a very young age in this movement is that being gay is not okay. Being someone who doesn't follow our ideals is not okay. Uh, the church preached many times, you know, and many times in my youth settings with other people who I considered my friends and family, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, there was a lot of conversation and laughter and mockery around homophobia, around the homosexual LGBTQIA space that made me very triggered and traumatized, but also made me very aware that, oh, I cannot be gay. I cannot be a member of this community because the community I'm a part of that I'm born and raised in doesn't support that. And as a child, you want to fit in, you want to belong. You just want to have a fun time. You just want to love your life. So that's what I did. I denounced being gay. I focused on being this 
Mooney, this kid in this unification church to really just love up the world and love up the space I was in because who doesn't want world peace? Who doesn't want ideal families? You know, that sounds great. That sounds beautiful. So I really just made that my life mission to be a part of this movement. Fast forward to 23, 24 years, I moved to LA and I came out as gay. I came out as who I always wanted to be because I never got to share that in a community that didn't want that. Even though that's who I always was, I always knew I was gay since I was in preschool. Um, so my narrative in the church cult was be this Mooney, be this youth pastor, be this pillar for my community to save the world. Moving to LA, my narrative was be gay. I am gay. I just want to tell everyone I'm gay. And also on that path, be an influencer, be a content creator, be someone who can share my story, build my own community, build my own world because I literally left all that behind. And since moving to Hawaii, I'm a great first date. One of the first things I talk about my first date is like, hey, I'm from a cult. Ha ha. Let's talk about it. Um, just because I feel like conversation is so important. And I didn't actually come out from a cult actually until two, three years ago. I joined a a workshop on storytelling in Redland, California with my best friend, Brian, who is the founder of Be Free Stories. Um, and we joined a seminar. And the only reason I spoke up at, in general there is because someone in my circle at the table is like all women wanting to own their businesses and be like, you know, boss babes. I'm just like, hi, I'm here with my best friend, Brian. <laughs> um, and she came out from a cult that was, um, I believe, Satanism in San Diego. I don't really know much about it, but it was a very intense cult that when she came out as a cult survivor, it triggered me to be like, oh, should I share too? And then I did. And conversations since then have been manifesting in my life every day. It's such, a, I mean, you tell that story so well and with such empathy and clarity, it's really amazing. And I know like that process of processing is ongoing, but you're you're so generous and your like emotional EQ is so high. Um, and you spoke about a lot of things. I mean, yeah, like you can't help but clock some of the language like your your parents were witnessed to and they're like true matches or whatever, true true marriages, or um, you know, you're you're a blessed child. Like this is all that sort of um, us them type of terminology and special language that makes you feel like you do have access to these answers to the world's most urgent problems. And we'll talk about some of our least favorite myths that have been spread by the culture about cults and cult followers um, in a little bit. But I mean, I can completely see how you what you in particular would thrive in a community like that because you are so charismatic yourself and so engaging. And I can see how people would want to heed your word and look to you. Um, and it's amazing that you're translating those brilliant skills um, into this new space where you're helping people process their trauma and their identities. And, um, and that's so great. And I, yeah, I mean, this word cult, I mean, I love that you made a joke about it, how you're a great first date because you're always, because you lead with like, I was in a cult. I have found that nobody has a better, more like wicked sense of humor about cults than survivors of some of history's most notorious ill-famed cults um they're like the first people to make a joke about it obviously it's a it's a coping mechanism and all of that um but in terms of the word cult you know over the course of writing this book my personal definition or interpretation of the world did not get clearer it only got more hazy and more nebulous um, because scholars have never even been able to agree on one singular list of criteria distinguishing a cult from a better accepted religion or another tightly bound social group. Um, a lot of experts that I spoke to avoid this term cult altogether because it has so frequently just been used as a pejorative, you know, to trash religions or people that society just doesn't approve of, um, you know, so many of, of the, yeah, the, yeah. Go on that point, exactly. No, I really want to, I love what you're saying, because even talking here, like I know as this gets out there, you know, I, this is me coming out as a cult survivor. This is me coming out from the Moonies, like, and for me, like when you first approached me, I'll be honest, like I was very triggered. I was very traumatized because 
on my journey of being a social media content creator influencer, I've been approached by many, many, many ex-moonies who are also in the closet or who were in the closet, who have been hurt by this church, who are still hurting by this movement, or others that are angry at me for being like, how dare you defy and defile the, the true family, the true parents? How dare you defile everything we've worked for? And it's hard. It's a dichotomy that I struggle with every day because I can be confident now and super happy because I have leadership experience. I, I was youth pastor for six years. My biggest fear, Amanda, growing up, it's crazy. Like I, my biggest fear is public speaking. Like in elementary school, I would literally start shaking and my hands would get so clammy. I would like get dizzy. I would sweat and I couldn't read the papers. Like it got like blurry. I couldn't do it. So what did I do? From thy church teachings, te they teach you all these things about becoming this perfected individual, you know, give and take action, all these amazing words that I actually applied to my everyday life and to every encounter I made, every brother and sister person I wanted to connect with, I've applied that so wholeheartedly and sincerely because I wanted to be this perfect Adam, perfect person who could help heal the world, help make a difference based on the teachings of my environment and movement. So I just practice every day. I would practice in front of the mirror, I'd practice in the bathroom, just talking, reading, reading, reading. And then I would read scriptures. Uh, we have a Bible book called The Divine Principle, which is basically the book that we use as our, our every day, you know. Uh, every every Sunday, I, when I was younger, we did something called hundoke, which is a Korean word for pledge, where it's like you do readings every day, you have to dress up really nice and you're like seven years old and you're like, I'm tired. Why do I have to wake up at 5 a.m. and bow to a picture of these Korean people that don't even know me, but my parents love them. So let's do it every week for most of my childhood. Um, but my dad gave us Kit Kat, so it's worth it. <laughs> um, but basically what I'm trying to say is it's like I cried yesterday, like almost all day because this is hard for me. This isn't like hee hee, like let's do this for clout or for money, I'm not getting paid for this, guys, by the way. Amanda doesn't pay me. <laughs> like, I'm doing this because it's so important to share this story because it's not just my own. I cared about my movement so much. I gave my whole heart to this, this, this movement. I didn't do youth ministry. I didn't lead summer camps and winter workshops. I didn't drive kids to and from youth group at night. I didn't save one of my friends from suicide. I didn't hear my friend, my kids, my youth group kids stories of their parents fighting them, verbally abusing them, physically abusing them. I didn't go through all this trauma in my life to be fucking quieted anymore. You know, that's why I have a platform. My platform is not for me anymore. The reason I'm growing so much on social media now is because of the Stop Asian Hate Movement that happened this year in April. I spoke up and I asked for help. And so many people from my movement have been asking me for help for years but I wasn't ready to, to give help. I wasn't ready to help, but now I am. That's why I'm here. I don't care who judges me or who's saying what, like I'm gonna keep going and I'm going and I appreciate you, Amanda, for letting me have a platform to share in this cult survivor journey I'm on. Whatever people wanna define that as, that's their perception, but I know too many people in my life that are broken because of the cult and too many people have nothing anymore but it doesn't matter to me because I know some people in this cult that I grew up in have found so much solace and love. And that's the other, that's the other side of it, right? Like we were a community. We didn't think of ourselves as a cult because it was just family. It was just fun. It was just our lives. Nobody joins we a cult. Yeah. No, no, no one joins a cult. So it's like reading your book was very therapeutic to be honest, because I never thought myself as a cult. Like I had friends leave when I was 16 years old, 17 years old when I started my journey to be a pastor actually at 16 because I homeschooled myself because I was severely bullied for not even for being gay but I wasn't even out I was severely bullied for being Asian um you know just spit on at the school bus my backpack ripped one day just random horrific things that kids did to other kids I was like what the heck you know it's like but I have a community that loves me the Moonies love me it's a family I can be safe there so I homeschooled myself I put my whole life into it only to realize when I come out on the other side it's not the case, you know, I'm actually not supported, I'm not loved, even though people tell me that when I see their social media posts and I see who they hang around with, when I see them getting matched and blessed in this cult, that doesn't support me. You're, right. you're, continu you're continuing the narrative that I don't belong and that's why I left. Yeah, I mean, oh gosh, there's so much to touch on. I, 
we were saying, you know, you were saying how like, it's not all bad. Like who would ever stay in a group that was all bad. And somebody recently when I was doing like an Instagram live with my dad um, asked, you know, was there anything that he took away from his years in Synanon that was actually positive? And my dad has such fortitude. He's like you, he's like looking forward, you know, press on soldier on, like, how can I take this trauma and transform it into something positive? And he said, yeah, there was actually something, um, you know, you can look back and you can say all of that was just negative. It was all for naught. Um, but he was like, no, there was there was something that I took away from it that I carry with me to this day. Um, the charismatic, but ultimately very power abusive and violent leader of Synanon, this guy named Chuck Dieterich is credited with coining the phrase, um, today is the first day of the rest of your life. And even though there was a lot of really damaging shit that went down in Synanon that of course did not start out as damaging, you know, these groups started out, as you mentioned, as, you know, a solution to the world's most urgent problems. And they love bomb you, you know, this is the term that's used to, you know, make you feel like you're special and you're chosen and you're blessed and like you're special enough to have access to this wisdom, to have access to these answers. And that's so compelling. I mean, who doesn't want to have, who doesn't want to be a, a part of a community that, you know, promises to solve problems from poverty to drug addiction to racism. I mean, that's how all of these groups start. But, you know, um, even though there was a lot of that incredibly negative experiences in Synanon, that sentiment that you don't have to be beholden to your past was something that my dad carries with me to this day. And maybe we can get to this, uh, to this question of like the, the myths we want to dispel um, or the one myth of cult survivors, cult followers that we wish to dispel because this idea that those who wind up joining or staying in cultish groups are desperate, disturbed, intellectually deficient, you know, from all of the interviews and research that I've done, it's just simply not the case. Um, I mean, I spoke to this, uh, you know, pretty famous cult scholar named Stephen Hassan, who's an ex-member of the Unification Church too. And he used to recruit members to the Unification Church. And, you know, he's, he knows a little something about the type of person that they they wanted to go for and you know he said that they wanted to go for people who were bright people who were service oriented you know the children of firefighters and teachers people who were curious people who wanted to help the world because it took a lot of resources and time and money to recruit someone why would they want to go for someone that was liable to break down quickly you know the, the through line that I found from all the people that I spoke to, in addition to being bright and service oriented and all those things, was an, not an overabundance of desperation, but optimism. This like idealism that the answers to the world's worst problems were available and that this group held them and that they could be a part of that. And you really can't fault people for that. I mean, sometimes to put it in pers perspective, I'll invite people to consider the idea that if you've ever been in an abusive one-on-one -on -one relationship or a toxic one-on-one -on -one relationship with a romantic partner or even a friend or a boss, then you know pretty well what it's like to stay in a situation that's really damaging for you and others because of so many reasons, sunk cost fallacy and loss aversion. I've been in this group for so long, I can't leave now. Optimism that if you just stick around for a little longer, things will improve. Um, so much loyalty, this loyalty that you've built for so long, fear that, that you won't be able to find something else, fear of the repercussions. I mean, like it's, it's, it's profoundly human to crave community connection, ritual, meaning, purpose. Like these are such human things. And it's it's also really human to want to stick by the people who made those promises to you. Um, but what is what is the the myth that you wish you could dispel about cults and cult survivors? Ooh, first off, I love everything you just said. Like it's so valid, it's so real, um, and it's very interesting because there's so many myths. But I I can only share from my perspective, right? Like. The people that join the movement, the unification movement, have a different lived experience than me born and raised in it. And me being raised in it, one thing to recognize about the unification church, unification church is it's global. There's millions, I don't know how many members, there's hundreds of thousands of members. Um, I don't know what the numbers are now, but it's just, there's such a big global movement and it's created such a beautiful community of networking and jobs and markets. Like you probably, you probably don't even know some of the buildings and things that we've had. Like, 
my movement is one of the biggest reasons why sushi is so popular in America. Um, we've had, we have newspaper companies, we have so many businesses, so many properties. It's a billion dollar organization that started from one guy in North Korea on a mountaintop, mountaintop in Korea, praying on a mountaintop for some salvation. And he got an epiphany, you know, it's like, it's wild to think how one person can do this, you know, starting in Korea with a mud hut church with only a few members and expanding to the whole world where now he's notorious and people love him and hate him. It's, it's insane to me how that can happen from one man. That's the reason I'm alive. That's the reason some of my best friends, that's the reason my parents, so many people in my life I know. And the reason I think certain ways is because of this one man. Was it you who we were talking about how like there's that meme or that quote um, that like in a cult, a bunch of people follow someone who promises to talk to God and in a religion, that person is dead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like that whole thing <laughs> that you just described has happened a lot throughout history. It's just- It's not, it's so, it's not, it's not uncommon. So many, so many cults have started from this story, this narrative. Cult, cults, cults and accepted religions alike. And cultural normativity has so much to do with whether a group is perceived as a cult or a religion, whether or not that group is any more irrational or dangerous than the better established group. Um, yeah, well, it's to, what. Well, to tie to that, in your book, you talk, you guys read the book, right? You have Amanda mentions, mentions soul cycle so many times. And it's funny, like, sometimes I'm like, why don't my parents get me? Like, I'm just like them. Because when I moved to LA, like the second year in LA, I lived in downtown LA. And I had maybe like 100,000 followers at the time. And I hit up, I DM'd SoulCycle. I was like, you know what? I want to start working out. I've heard so much buzz about SoulCycle. There's so many, there's one literally walking distance from my apartment. Let's try it. I DM'd them and they're like, oh my gosh. Yeah, like we would love to have you be a member. All you have to do is post once a month and we'll give you 10 free classes and a bunch of Lululemon clothes. I'm like, yes, I'm down. And the Soul Cycles version of love bombing. <laughs> exactly. And it was fun until I heard like one of the founders of Soul Cycles homophobic and supports Trump. Like that was not fun. Then I was like, okay, bye, I'm leaving. Um, but before that, I would join and a lot of the language used in Soul Cycles very similar to unification movement. There's a lot of minds that like the inner child, that person in me was like, oh, I love this. Like, this is motivates me. And it's it's so interesting to think, like I had so many free passes, I would bring friends over, influencer friends, or even my brother and friends that visited me at times. And I would, I love doing like psychology experience, experiments on people in my life, just to see how they react to things. It's the, the psychology major in me. Um, but my friends would be from the, the cult we grew up in, would be so much more responsive to the language and soul cycle versus my friends that didn't grow up religious, didn't grow up in that environment where they needed that group mentality, that group focus. And they're like, this is dumb. Uh, I'm gonna go <laughs> on the treadmill. <laughs> like it was well, so interesting. For yeah, me. So, so in the book, right, I talk about this cultish spectrum, how we might not all agree that the Unification Church and, um, and uh, say the Kundalini yogis and multi-level marketing schemes and SoulCycle are all full-blown cults, but it, we, we can at least agree that they fall on this cultish spectrum somewhere because you know during, there are certain eras in our history when we increasingly lose trust in these mainstream spiritual and moral institutions that are supposed to provide us with support. Um, they, you know, everything from the healthcare system to churches to government. You know, we're in one of those eras right now, like the 60s and 70s, you know, when the Unification Church was founded, that was one of those eras and we're in one of those eras now. And there are so, and this is when so many alternative groups form to fill these voids because we're moving away from these sites of community and connection and solidarity and spirituality. But then we're left like so lost or not even lost, we're left seeking. Um, it's not really, it's not desperation. We, we crave these things um, as human beings. And now, you know, our, our culture um, has come up with so many sites of community and connection that are more 
secular and that don't necessarily seem cultish because they're not religious. Um, but there are certain social media communities that fall in this category and certain like cults fitness communities that fall in this category. I mean, this is the, the span of the word cult, right? Like cult has become one of these words that can be applied to pretty much anything depending on the context from an extreme religion to a brand that people follow with a lot of loyalty. And the fact that there are so many meanings really says a lot about how fraught our cultural relationship to spirituality and community and identity and meaning has really become. Um, but before we, so I wanna, we wanna answer, we wanna hear some questions. So there's this ask a question button below. If folks have questions, feel free to ask them. But before yes. we get to questions, um, I would love to hear like what some of the language that was used um, during your upbringing in the unification church that you like still remember and like serve and that still serves a big role in your life. Right. Well, before I go into that, I want to address Jenny in the group chat. She's actually, I remember you, Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Um, it's wild. Jenny was not born and raised in the unification church, but she was best friends with one of the youth group kids I took care of um, in my Virginia community. Um, so for Jenny to mention that, I really appreciate you. Um, I remember, I, I'm an empath, I remember everything. So I, a big part of, you, you mentioned it earlier, witnessing, right? A big part of me being a youth pastor, me being a youth leader in Virginia, and then doing, I led workshops in upstate New York, in Ohio, in DC, Virginia, Maryland community. Like we had different communities and districts. It was kind of like the Hunger Games, like where there's the capital and like different places. Like the reason, I knew I could become an influencer is because I already was in my church an influencer, if that makes sense. Like everyone knew Owen Pearson as the youth pastor and I liked it that way because I didn't want anyone to know me as uh, closeted or anyone to know me as depressed or suicidal. Like I just wanted people to know me as Owen Pearson, the youth pastor. And I kept it that way. So when people like Jenny, I really appreciate your comment because it means a lot to me that I left an impact on you because that was my goal. As someone who followed this church religiously, to us to a T, you know, I have personal experiences that will be in my book one day where I confronted and experienced traumatic experiences from the true family and the true family as a terminology I'm going to get into. So the people that founded this movement, Reverend Sung Myung Moon and Hak Jahan Moon, um, I think they're self-proclaimed doctors or reverends. I never saw once their doctorate degree or anything. So if someone wants to show that to me, please do. Otherwise, I don't believe it. Um, but they started this movement. Uh, Reverend Moon was 40 years old. He married uh, Hak Jahan Moon, who was only 16 years old. And she is still alive. He passed away a bit ago. Um, and they have, I believe, 12 to 14 kids. I don't remember. Uh, dissociation, dissociation disorder is real. Um, but out of those many kids, they were called the true family. And my cult leaders were called true parents. And we, every household had pictures of the true parents in humbuck style, so Korean style. So I actually know a lot about Korean culture more than Japanese culture because a big part of the Muni unification movement is Koreans are the chosen people. And because of what happened, if you know history, Japan and Korea have a lot of animosity in history, unfortunately. It's really just so, so dark and sad what's happened between the two countries and uh, the people. But because I'm Japanese, my mom's Japanese, we, for lack of a better word, we were the slaves of the community. We had to tithe more. Tithing is when you donate money. We had to give more to the church whenever the church asked. We were not given opportunities to do many things, whereas I saw my Korean friends and Korean leaders having really nice houses and mansions. And I was confused because like, you are on a pastor's salary. How do you have this nice giant house? Whereas my family, we we've, um, went bankrupt at least twice. And my mom sells flowers. A big part of my movement is we sell flowers. My mom sells flowers at bars every weekend just to make us ends meet because we don't have any money. It was very peculiar as someone who grew up in this church, seeing us as one family under God, another terminology, as one family under God, why are the Koreans closer to God? And why are the Japanese given this mission to suffer and do all the hard work and labor, whereas the Koreans get to sit pretty and look nice and get to be really close up to the true parents and receive all the love from them. Whereas my mom is in the back cleaning this cult leader's underwear in his own room because she is Japanese and needs to take care of him. 
where she has three boys at home that have no nourishment and no care from their parents. Because anytime these two parents came into DC, guess what my mom and dad were? And guess where I was? Babysitting my two younger brothers and most of the youth in my community by myself or with other members of the church. That's hard. That's the reality. Totally. You know, it reminds me, I mean, these hidden hierarchies are a pattern that you'll find in a lot of these groups that are hidden with euphemisms and special labels. Like you have this one family under God, or I remember I interviewed someone um, who was uh, part of Shambhala Buddhism, which is a controversial um, sort of a cultish type Eastern derived group um, that promised, you know, to have absolutely no hierarchies. They're there were no, you know, there was no ladder. There was nothing like that. It was, it was um, painted as a mandala. There was like the Shambhala mandala that didn't have a top, but a center. And there were these labels that were used to obscure what was really going on. Um, and something that I remember interviewing some other folks from the Unification Church, I wonder if you are familiar with this term, heavenly deception. Was that something that uh, came up ever? It might not have been a 70s term. I don't know that, I know heavenly was used a lot. Um, things that were used a lot is, um, you know, perfection, we, like we have the three great blessings, which is like individual, you know, family and creation. So when you can perfect yourself then you can perfect your family and then perfect, have dominion over the world. Um, a big part of people born in the church, we are called second generation because we are born with no original sin. There's a whole wine ceremony behind that where our parents getting matched, pretty much matching is like engagement and then blessing is marriage. So after the blessing ceremony, um, for at least a lot of my par the parents, they had to do a 40 day, you know, fast of no sexual encounter at all with that person. Like unconditioned, there's a lot of conditions that were made, you know, prayer conditions and numbers were a big part of our language. You know, seven was a lucky number, 21, 40 was a big number, you know, 40 day liberations and there's just so many value in numbers with my uh, upbringing and the whole concept of no original sin is uh, when you were born in this movement, your children born in this movement are born perfect, meaning they, they told us that because we're perfect, we have no original sin, meaning we are just like original Adam and Eve. So any family we have after that would be third generation. And we were only allowed to get matched or blessed with other people in our movement. Um, and obviously only a man and a woman no no such thing as gay in this in this community um so that was a big language of being told from a very young age that we are special and that we have this divine mission with the divine principle with the true family one family under god to create an ideal world and this lofty language is so often used, you know, all of this incredibly like grandiose um, love bomby type language is something that you'll find in a lot of these groups because when you create the when you when you initially create the impression that everyone who's a member of this group is special, you can later trade that for for an excuse to mistreat them which as it sounds was something that you experienced when you when you sort of paint with the help of these lofty euphemisms this picture that everyone who's involved with this group is special then any mistreatment that you endure can be written off as like special treatment just for you and you don't want to be on the outside you don't want to know what's on the outside because then you you won't be a member of this you know holy community anymore and well before we get to the questions i actually like everything you're 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 saying makes me think of this one quick section of the book that I want to read really quickly about the power of religious language. It's just like a page. And then there's a question that I really like that's already in the chat. And if others or that's already in the question tab, I mean, and if others have more, feel free to leave them there. Um, but I just want to read this one, one page really quick. Um, it says, this is from part, part, Three, it says, this is the power of religious language. Whether it's biblical, biblical words we've grown up with and know so well we, we never consider anything different, God, commandment, sin, or alternative phrases from a newer movement, like blessed, like one nation under God or blessed children, and here I have some Scientology terms, religious speech, speech packs a unique punch. Remember the theory of linguistic performativity, the one about how language doesn't just reflect reality, it actively creates reality, something I mentioned earlier. Religious language, some scholars say, is the single most intensely performative kind of speech there is. Much religious language performs rather than informs, rousing us to act in, in the act out our best or worst of our human nature, wrote Gary Etherell in his book, Dangerous Words. 
Religious utterances cause events to transpire in a way that feels incomparably profound for believers. We use chance to manifest things, to make things happen, to make ourselves believe in things, said Abby Shaw, a 27-year-old social worker and ex-member of Shambhala, a controversial offshoot of Tibetan Buddhism, whom I met at a party in LA and interviewed a few days later. Some of the language I loved and call on to this day, and some of it caused the most bizarre trauma I've ever experienced. Think of all the performative verbs that come up in religious scenarios. Bless, curse, believe, confess, forgive, vow, pray. These words trigger significant consequential changes in a way that non-religious language just doesn't. The phrase, in the name of God, can allow a speaker to wed, divorce, even banish someone in, the way, in a way that, in the name of Kylie Jenner, let's say, cannot. Unless you truly do worship at the altar of Kylie Jenner, believing she has sole jurisdiction over your life and afterlife, in which case I stand corrected and I wish I'd interviewed you for this book. You could very well say in the name of God in a non-religious way, scriptural phrases pervade our daily secular lives. Just think of Bible-themed slang like hashtag blessed. But these expressions assume a special supernatural force when stated in a religious context because the speaker is invoking what they believe to be to be the ultimate authority to imbue their declaration with meaning. Um, so I'll just like stop there. But the but we take language for granted in general because it is invisible and we don't think about its profound power. But it is how power is exerted. It's how beliefs are manufactured and disseminated. It's everything. Um, yeah. So let's yeah. let's move on to questions. Someone asks, um, Nikos asks, I've done kundalini, kundalini yoga and appreciate its mix of, I'm going to mispronounce, but pranayam, asanas, and chanting. Can one find value in what's on offer apart from the cultish baggage? And I think absolutely, you know, my angle is not at all to dissuade people from um, becoming involved in cultish groups. Again, it's profoundly human to seek out these communities of like-minded seekers and engage in these rituals and spiritual practices. Um, but there are some important questions to ask yourself um, to, to evaluate how whether or not this, this affiliation is healthy for you. Are you allowed to engage casually or is it an all or nothing sort of thing? Um, are you being filled with a sense of elitism just because you're involved with this? Are they creating that us-them dichotomy? Is there this sort of us ends justify the means philosophy going on? Are you not allowed to ask questions or push back? You know, that's something that that's something that you were talking about, Owen. It's like, why, why are you promising me this, but you're actually doing that? And if you're not able to express pushback, um, that's a real red flag because anything legitimate will stand up to scrutiny. And if it doesn't, that's a sign that you you might be in a group that's a little too uh, cultish for comfort, as I like to say. But um, yes, it's, it's, it's important for us human beings to seek out community. Um, but I think one solution, and it's a solution that one of the Jonestown survivors that I spoke to for the book provided um, or offered to me was maybe it's maybe it's a better idea to find yourself a member of like multiple cultish groups to sort of uh, diversify your your spiritual and social portfolio, if you will, instead of putting all your eggs in one basket, um, because that can keep you sort of tethered to yourself and tethered to reality. Um, yeah, no, I I agree with everything you just said, Amanda, because a lot of big questions I get sometimes asked or I ask myself is, and in therapy is, do I regret being born and raised? And do I regret staying as long as I did? Because no one forced me to stay, but the language and the connection, the deep connections I felt with everyone in my community, because for that was the biggest thing. Like, and a lot of my friends, we talk about it all the time. Like I was in Seattle last week working at Alaska Airlines for their Pride in the Sky campaign, which is super cool. And when I was there, my friend reached out to me last year. We used to be best friends in MySpace days. And she told me that, you know, Back last year, there was a documentary that came out about our movement called Blessed Child from another cult survivor. And she reached out to me and she's like, hey, I just want to reach out because I want to talk to other queer ex-moonies. And when she told me that, I was like, I didn't know, first off, I didn't know you were queer. And second off, I didn't know you were an ex-moonie because I thought you were married to a man. And we had to dive deep into that and talk about that and figure out what happened and how did two queers in, the, in early high school find each other in this community, but didn't have the safe space or the language to come out to each other because there was definite fear that if we came out, we would get sent away, far, far away, because there were programs for uh, misfit kids 
or sent away whenever they defiled the movement, whenever they fought back, unfortunately. And that's another topic that unfortunately has its own traumas and own conversations beyond this. Um, but do I regret being a part of it? I don't because it set such a strong foundation for who I am as a person in my life. It's, it's taught me that as a as content creator on social media, I really don't care anymore if people follow or unfollow me. That's their journey. My journey is already unfolding in so many ways and it's because I have such deep, profound relationships with people from my community, from my unification movement that taught me so much. But when it was my time to leave, I left. And it's been so great to leave. It's been so helpful, it's been so healing. But knowing that it's my, it's my upbringing, it's my past, I can never get rid of that and I don't want to because trying to get rid of your past just does you no help in the present and future. It just hurts so much. So I just accept what happened and I focus on my own healing and the healing of people that want to connect with me, that have shared space with me, that have similar backgrounds and stories, whether they're mixed race, whether they're queer, going through mental illness in their lives or in their family lives. Like that's what I care about right now. I don't care that you follow this movement, but I do care that it is a toxic environment still for so many and the leadership is corrupt. So what will I do in the future? You'll have to wait and see because I have a lot of light and darkness in me and I'm not afraid to use either. I love that so much. Um, and I love what you're saying too, because m most of the survivors of, again, some of the most notorious cults in all of history from Heaven's Gate to Jonestown to Scientology, um, they, sh they share your point of view um, that they don't regret what happened to them. Um, they wouldn't change it because you know, th these are our stories, like we all have baggage and it's it's okay to forgive yourself or to, you know, for you know, to be gentle with yourself when reflecting on those experiences and to have nuance when remembering them because, you know, it probably isn't healthy just to say that whole experience was totally evil and I regret it. You know, we all have these journeys and we all have trauma and we all have our stories and, you know, it's like what you do with it moving forward. And again, like this Thing that everyone that I spoke to had in common was this optimism and I admire that so much and it's so counterintuitive you think like cult followers they're cuckoo but no they're they're bright and they're idealistic and um, they all everyone I talked to turned it into something beautiful whether it was um, like a one-woman comedy show or they decided to become um, uh, like a sort of spiritual guide in a healthy way themselves or whether they decided to become a Quaker and a human rights activist. Like there were so many um, sort of like codas to these different journeys, um, but they were all really beautiful and I felt so privileged to be able to hear them. Um, well, uh, people are being shy with the questions. If people are being shy, I mean, it's a Wednesday night. We can let everybody go. Um, Owen, do you have any like last words? Um, I just want to say thank you to all the people in the chat and who listened. And I'm just so grateful that our paths crossed Amanda. Like you were not born and raised in a cult, but your dad did. And you chose to take that on for your narrative and your story. So, um, yeah, just thank you so much for writing this book because it's healed me in ways I didn't know I needed, needed healing in. And that is something that I really cherish and I'm just grateful for because I I didn't expect to be where I'm at today. You know, I I thought I was going to die a long time ago <laughs> to say that very funnily, but like my, my environment was not healthy to me. It was not conductive to my story. So just thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, you are like one of the most radiant people that I know. And we've only had one brief encounter in person. Yeah. It's mostly been, been online. But yeah. I know. But we'll you, have many you, more. Are, you are such a sunshiny beam of light. And I know that you have so much ahead of you. And I mean, we both do, but I can't wait for your story to be told in whatever way that manifests. Um, and I also want to thank everybody in the chat for saying such kind and validating thank things. You everyone. Thank you for hosting Skylight. Um, this, was, this was such a, for me, an awkward moment to come back because I turn my camera on. I'm in the middle of you two as you're saying the most heartfelt things to each other. I'm just like, Oh no, I should have covered my <gasps> No, you're a part of this. You're a part of this. Lance. <laughs> oh my god, I am. Thank you. Oh my god, I feel the love. I feel the love. Let's start our own call. Yes. Um Definitely. let's do it. Or you can just follow me on Instagram because that's not a call. Yeah. <laughs>
Yes, they are called followers, but in a <laughs> but it's different. It's different. It's, yeah. different. it's totally different. It's totally different. It's totally different. You know, no, this has been fantastic. Um, you can still order the book below, and when I say you still can, I mean you do it. Do it now. Click that button. Click it. It's something fun will happen, and by that I mean you'll be able to buy this great book. Um, thank you. And it might come with a ghost. It might come with a ghost. And that's, listen, ghosts not guaranteed, but maybe. Ghosts not guaranteed, but. Maybe but... promised. Maybe promised. Maybe. <laughs> well, thank you both again, Amanda and Owen. This has been a great time. It's been so, I mean, like, this has been, there's been laughs. There's been tears there's been a heart there's, there's been, been there's been custom cultish earrings look at those well, earrings. I'm so earrings for now for sale nowhere but like they should be <laughs> they should be but i would let's say i would pierce my ears right now to be wearing them oh wow <laughs> a little culty that's a little culty you know what i heard i have a, I have a i have a citrine crystal because i started getting into crystals from shaman because that's a very thing in hawaii i love it there's one cult that. after another so what I'm hearing is I need to be I need to be the next one getting my ears pierced. Um, no, thank you both again. Thank, thank you to you. all the people out there watching. Uh, you're amazing, and thank you for coming out tonight. And you both have a great rest of your night. And stop by Skylight. I will. Oh, yeah. Have Bye. a good one. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.